of people. We're all characterized in a certain way. People that know us, we've got a character profile in, our, in their heads. And it can be positive, you know, characterized as being happy almost all the time. There's this kid on my son and daughter's baseball team named Kevin. The kid is happy every time I see him. And I asked his mom about it, and she said, yeah, that's Kevin. Kevin is characterized as always being happy. Other people I can think of are characterized as being hard workers, diligent. You know, if you know that so-and-so is on a project, it's going to be done. You know, through consistent experience, we just know that that, that person, that individual is going to get it done. There's also negative characterizations. Um, people, we may all know somebody that's habitually characterized as being late all the time. There's a party, there's a, there's a thing, whatever's going on, and you know, so-and-so shows up some amount of time late. Uh, in movies, we see uh, oftentimes a scenario of parents telling their child they'll be at the game. I'll be there, you know, Joey. And, uh, and then rarely showing up, and we see in the movie the impact on that child of my mom, my dad said they were going to be there. Characterization is what a person is characterized by. It's the norm, and exceptions are noticed. The Bible speaks to this trust and this characterization concept in the book of Proverbs. Let's take a look. In Ecclesiastes, it says, it's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. We all know this uh, concept, maybe uh, the modern-day uh, version of it is at work, you know, undercommit so you can overperform. You know, you don't want to say you'll hit the bar too high and then miss it. Um, and as I thought about the word vow, you know, we don't use that much. We don't often say, I vow to you, honey, at all. You know, we don't do that much. But if you think about what it means, at least for me, the way I distill it is, it's simply put, it's saying you'll do something. I saying I'll, I'll do something. And if you look at the verse again and put that in, it's better not to say you'll do something than to say you'll do something and not fulfill it. You know, we say these things, at least in our home, maybe yours, you know, to children, you know. Yes, we'll go to the park after dinner. I'm saying I'm going to do something. On Saturday, we're going to play catch. We're going to watch that movie together. To spouses, we may say, I'll be home at 6. Or, or to, you know, honey, I'm not going to make any more big expenditures without talking first. I know the budget's important. And it's in these little things. And that's where I, I hope we can focus. The little commitments, the little saying I'll do something, that we start to build that bridge of trust so it can be very stable. And, you know, for me, I want my kids to, to trust, especially as they get older. Our oldest is seven right now. I want her to know that when I say something, I have her best interests in mind. So when we get to the medium, the medium-sized things or the big things, you know, in the teen years or later, that if Dad's saying it, it's probably something I should hang on to. It wasn't long ago, I'll tell another story myself, that uh, I had a characterization that wasn't that pretty. I was the guy that said, I'll be home at 6. And I rarely was. I was characterized as habitually being late. It would be 6.10, 6.15, 6.05. Sometimes I'd feel good, 6.01, you know. Sometimes it'd be 6.40, 6.45, you know. And, and uh, you know, my wife started to not trust what I was saying. My kids sometimes would be outside, where's dad? Oh, he's late again. And it wasn't good. It all came to a head on vacation one time. We were up in South Haven, Michigan. And, you know, we're not supposed to fight on vacation, right? <laughs> That's not supposed to happen. Um, but I went out to run an errand. It was, probably should have taken about 45 minutes. And in my mode at the time, I decided to do another thing. 
and wound up getting back about an hour and a half. Deb, in the meantime, had gotten the kids ready to go to the beach with Daddy. And they were all waiting. Fight. Where have you been? You know? And so we, you know, we put the beach plans on hold and tried to work through it um, and talk through it. And you know, she relayed, this isn't an isolated instance. This happens a lot. And so I had to take a very not pleasant look at myself um, and say, wow, I, I've, I've got a character flaw in this arena. I'm, I'm just not where I want to be. And so um, I really thought about it. Ply, what do I know about, you know, what do I know about leadership? And my training is as an engineer. I'm a marketer right now, but uh, I decided I would track myself, okay? I'm put a measure in place, right? You want to improve? You put a measure in place. So my measure was I'm going to be on time. And so I tracked myself the first week. Four out of five, right? Super dad. The next week I slipped. Three out of five. Because inertia is a powerful thing. You know, you kind of go back to what you've done for forever. And then uh, I, next week I did better. And the next week after that, I did better. And I tracked it, no lie, probably three straight months. And I got to the point where I was hitting 80%. And uh, you know, I had moved from being characterized as can't trust dad to be home on time, can't trust my husband to be home. You know, if he says six, it's not going to be six, to most of the time, we can trust dad. You might say it's a little weird, but you know, who wouldn't do it at work if we knew something was off at work and we knew it was affecting results? You know, who of us wouldn't put a measure in place and think through it? For me, it was time. I couldn't be trusted on time. Where is your growing edge um, to build the bridge of trust one board at a time with your family? You know, is it money? Is it keeping your word? Is it watching your emotions? Is it putting others first? Is it substance use? What is it? What's on your mind as I'm talking? And think about yourself. Try not to be, you know, doing this number. But are, is there something in each of our lives that is eroding some trust in our relationships? What can we do? So we've talked about prioritizing the family plate, keeping that sucker spinning at all costs. We've talked about maybe looking at our commitments and maybe pulling out of some so we've got some time and energy. And we've talked about building trust. And maybe we've got all these. And these are the foundations that provide the, the platform for probably the, the most important, which I've termed knowing the needs and then providing for the needs. You know, you interview anyone that works for a good leader and they'll tell you a couple things. They'll say, you know, that person knows me. They listen to me. When I stop by, you know, they may, may be in the middle of something and they'll drop it. You know, they always seem to have time for me. I feel like I'm their priority. If I say, you know, we're not going to be able to do this because of these things, they work with me to figure out how to provide those things. And they'll go off and, and try to bring them back. Interview anybody that works for a leader that perhaps isn't as good. And oftentimes what you'll hear is so-and-so, they, they care more about themselves than me. You know, or they, don't, they don't make time for me. You know, I tell them we're not going to be able to do it because of this reasons, and they tell try harder. You know, they don't know the needs. They don't provide the needs. Certainly a good leader knows that the needs of his or her organization is in touch with them and then find, finds ways to provide for them. The intelligent leader understands that if his or her people don't succeed, the business isn't going to succeed. So he or she diligently stays in touch with the needs and then provides for them. The Bible again captures these two concepts incredibly well. Let's look at the next two verses. From Proverbs. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. 
Now, I got to say, I know none of us want to be thought of as a flock or, you know, no spouse wants to be termed a livestock, okay? But work with me here, all right? When I, when I, was, when I had a team of 60 uh, technicians in manufacturing, I thought of them in my mind with this verse in mind, you know, what's the condition of my flocks? How, how, how is it going? And now that I'm a dad and husband, you know, how is the condition of my family, my spouse, my kids? Are they okay? Then the second verse from 1 Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith. For those of us that are endeavoring to follow God, that are in, you know, wanting to know Christ, wanting to walk you know, in the ways the Bible talks about, you know, the faith, this is a hard verse. You know, if, if we don't provide for the needs of our immediate family, we've denied that faith. That's stark. But I think it reveals God's heart on the matter. And if you read it backwards, the faith should lead us where? Directly to our families. To, to providing for our family's needs. Provision is the other key word in that second verse. You know, what is provision? What does it mean to provide? If it's that important, if our faith should lead us to provide for our, need, for our immediate family, what's provision? Certainly, it's more than physical needs. You know, it's not just... I gave you a roof, I gave you a bed, I gave you a food, I gave you, you know, it's, I, we all know that. The Bible teaches that we have four dimensions, that each of us has four dimensions. Physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. We see this in the verse. And Carl's hit this verse several times uh, this summer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There's the four dimensions. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. We all have that, those parts to us. And then love your neighbor as yourself. So in that context of four dimensions of people, how can we provide for those needs? Physical provision, you know, we're in Westchester. We probably don't need to talk about that much. We all know we've got to do that. Mental, we've probably heard the stats. I just heard it late, earlier this week that more than 50% of the new jobs in America require at least two years of college. The mental needs, the, the education, the preparation. Spiritual, we've, we've looked at a pointed example of Eli who didn't pass along you know, his knowledge of God to his own kids. But I'd like to touch on the emotional needs and emotions. What's emotions? You know, it can be excitement, you know, sadness, gladness, musings, fears, thoughts. In the parenting class that we uh, facilitate, there's a concept called windows. You know, windows of the soul where our, our, our spouse or someone we know well or our kids Give us a peek inside what's really going on, you know. And uh, when that happens, uh, when our family member opens that window, you know, we just got to drop everything. We got to put the to-do list on hold because they're wanting to connect with us in a new way. And I'll go back to the trust. The little things pave the way for the big things. You know, it seems every day with five kids, I have the opportunity to provide for a, an emotional need. You know, my, my son will come running in, Dad, 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 look at this. He's got some bug, you know. And so I can provide emotional need there and, you know, meet him where he is. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, you know, let's play with it. Let's look at it, you know. Make a choice to provide the need, you know. Sometimes it's sadness. My little three-year-old was really sad the other day, and, you know, we're not really sure what it was about, but she was sad, you know. So how can I provide for that need? And, you know, I, I, I hit it right that time. I, you know, I got down with her, and I stopped what I was doing, and I just held her. Oh, honey, you know, that is sad. You know, providing for the emotional needs. And it's that little stuff, those little things that pave the way for the big stuff. Well, one night, a window opened, and I missed the cue. Totally blew it. 
Um, at our home, the windows tend to open at night when we're putting the kids down for bed. They tend to be ready to talk. And it's right when we're ready to be done. You know, we're ready to say goodnight, we're going to go read a book, we're going to chill out, we're going to go to sleep, right? But it's oftentimes then when they crack open just a little bit. My son, Peter, was particularly chatty that night. He's, uh, he was probably uh, five at the time. And he told me one thing after another, and I, find, you know, I started, got to say goodnight to the other kids, right? So I said, okay, one more, one more. And he told me, another, oh, that's that. So I finally just said, okay, you know, we got to be done. And, uh, and he, okay, you know, and I was walking out of the room, step one, step two, okay, it's working. Oh, Dad! <sighs> you know, we just talked, Peter, no more. No, but Dad, 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 I got to tell you. Son, you know, and I just didn't handle it. Totally, way too firm, way too everything you don't want to talk about in church. And so uh, I, I stopped him and I left. And I said, and I went down and told Deb, so frustrated. I listened to him. I listened to him. I listened to him. And I told him he had to be done. And then I'm walking out of the room and you know the story. And she said, honey, did he tell you about such and such? And I thought, and he told me about five things. No, he didn't tell me about that. Oh, honey, he's been waiting all day, ever since noon. He's been talking. I want to tell Dad. I got to tell Dad. Well, I felt pretty bad at that moment. <laughs> kind of the biggest heel in Westchester, maybe the, you know, the Western Hemisphere. So I'd, you know, strike one, I missed. Strike two, I missed. But there's another pitch, right? You always got another pitch. And so I opted to go upstairs. And I walked into his room kind of quiet. And, and he was sitting there crying. You know, he was just, he was crying. And, um... I picked him up, and we went and sat in the rocking chair, and I held him, and I said, you know, Daddy was wrong. I didn't know. You know, I'm sorry. You know, will you forgive me? And we kind of patched up the relationship, and, and then I said, you want to tell me about that cool thing? And he said, yeah. And he told me. And it was pretty cool, you know. The window reopened again. So, you know, we oftentimes miss the first couple pitches, uh, but I believe in relationships, there's always another opportunity to, to get it right. Know the condition of your flocks. Listen. Stop what we're doing. Provide for the family in all ways, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. So, so to sum up, I've talked about the priority of family, you know, the main plate, keeping that going at all costs. Presence, you know, lightening some of the load of our outside commitments, maybe responsibly negotiating out of some of the things we said we'd do with other people. Trust. You know, building it every chance we get. Knowing the needs, all of them, all dimensions of a person. And then providing however we can, consistently, intentionally providing for those needs. And you may be sitting there as I do, and it's like, that's going to take a lot of time. That's going to come at some amount of sacrifice, you know. I guess the motivation that I've found uh, every time I talk to a parent who's, you know, got an 18 or a 19 or a 20-year-old, and they've just dropped him off at college, and they're kind of hitting that empty nest phase. And they'll, they'll look at me and they'll just say, it goes so fast. You know, it's just yesterday I was wrestling with them on the floor and they're gone. They're off into their own life. And they look at me and they say, Pete, don't miss it. It goes so fast. In closing, we're going to look at a movie clip. Uh, if anybody saw the movie Armageddon, uh, it's a sci-fi movie. It's a you know, doomsday scenario. There's this big honking asteroid heading towards planet Earth. It's the size of planet Earth. It's on a collision course with planet Earth, and life as we know it's going to end. So NASA concocts this plan. 
that they'll hire some oil uh, well you know, diggers, some drillers, and they'll turn them into astronauts. And they'll fly them up onto the asteroid, and they'll drill this hole, and they'll deposit a nuclear warhead in the center, some people are nodding, in the center of the asteroid. Okay? And then, they, then they'll take off, and they'll radio down and detonate it, and hopefully the thing will split, and it'll miss the planet Earth. Well, they get up there, they do that, and something's wrong with the equipment. The apparatus that they're supposed to take off and leave the planet and then signal it isn't working. So somebody has to stay behind and detonate it on the asteroid, obviously at the sacrifice of their life. They draw straws, and uh, this one guy, A.J., wins or loses. He has to stay. And in the moment when he's about ready to walk out, the team leader switches the scenario, and, he, and the, the guy stays in, and the team leader goes out. If, if you've seen the movie, the team leader is the dad of a daughter, and the guy that was supposed to stay behind was, the, was her fiancé. He switches it, and he says, I'm staying. I'm sacrificing my life for you guys. And the scene we're going to look at is, is uh, the last words between the dad and the daughter as he radios down to say goodbye. Let's watch it together. <laughs> 